You're listening to the podcast of Recast Church in Matawan, Michigan. This week, Pastor Don Filsick preaches from his sermon series titled, 1 Corinthians, Sinful Church, Powerful Gospel. Let's listen in. Well, good morning and welcome to Recast Church. I'm Don Filsick. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's really good to be together on this Father's Day. As I say every... Uh, every year, um, this is a day set aside for you to honor your fathers if you're able, and it's a, it's a glorious thing that in our culture, it's a day of recognition that our culture still recognizes some value. God values family, and he values family high enough to command us. He, out, of, out of 10 commandments, he chose to give us a command that says, honor your father and mother. So this morning, we're going to continue um, working through the, the next section of 1 Corinthians, but with a mind, I, I just want to encourage you as much as possible with a mind towards honoring your parents and uh, thinking through that, if that's a possibility. Maybe it, I say this often, but maybe it's a phone call that you need to have uh, if there's some distance there or whatever. Maybe it's even some reconciliation, because I recognize that not everybody has a great relationship with your parents, and so... Um, encourage that. But uh, continuing to work through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be, uh, we're getting near the end of Paul's uh, first point, not the end of the book, but the end of the first point of rebuke to the Corinthian church. Now this, this letter takes the form of waves of rebuke, waves of correction, waves of things that they're not necessarily getting right that he wants to correct them. And how many would identify that there are times in your life where somebody has been gracious to give you a little correction? Like where there's been, like I needed it and I got it. Uh, well, we're talking about Father's Day. Hopefully you receive some correction in your youth. Um, but he's been addressing them uh, at the point of their divisions. Divisions is this first area where the Corinthians are not getting it right. Um, and he's been deeply concerned for the root causes of those divisions. And that's why it's been a longer chunk of scripture dedicated to divisions within the church. One of the root, uh, the root causes of division in the church in Corinth was centered on the idea of deeper knowledge. Uh, the church in Corinth thought that there was a secret, deeper understanding, a secret, deeper knowledge available more than just the gospel that Paul had brought to them. And so some thought they had found that key to deeper wisdom, kind of growing beyond the gospel, growing beyond Paul was their idea, and they found that in their favorite preachers. Um, and that was the second root cause of divisions, is that they were dividing up into factions that followed uh, specific famous preachers. Some said, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas, which is just the Aramaic name for Peter. I follow Peter. So Paul has been trying to pull up the weed of division from this church, roots and all, while trying to keep the healthy plant of a gospel-centered church intact. And I confess that the section of 1 Corinthians has been repetitive as we've gone through it. It's been quite thorough. It's been extensive. And yet, I hope for you, just like me, very helpful. When a man repeats himself a lot, as much as Paul does throughout these first, really, four chapters of 1 Corinthians, centered on the one subject of division, we ought to listen up. Especially in a day and an age when ink and parchment was precious. It was, it was expensive and it took his time and his effort to write these things down. And he has done so in a repetitive fashion. But not just the cost of ink and the cost of parchment should grab our attention. But it's also clear that the Spirit of God desires for us to see this problem of division from every, every proposed angle and that we would walk away by the end of chapter four uh, in the next sermon on this section in a couple of weeks with a strong conviction that divisiveness within the church is a very, very, very bad thing. I won't ask for a show of hands, but my guess is that many of you here in this room have experienced some level of Christian division in your lifetime. That you've experienced some of the heartache and some of the hardship that can come about through a, a faith community that is warring against itself. That is, uh, that is a very, like I said, you can testify, it's a very, very, very bad thing when there's divisiveness among God's people. So I want you to open your Bibles or your scripture journals or your devices to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Um, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. And I do say that almost kind of like a mantra every week, open your Bibles or your scripture journals or your devices. The reason I say that is that somebody actually told me at one point, they, had, they were kind of new to recast and they saw people, as soon as I started to read the Bible, they, they saw people pull out their phones and they thought, how rude. And I'm like, no, 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 you, you pull out your device. If that's the way you access the Bible, that's, that's absolutely fine. But we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Please follow along verse 16 through the first five verses 
of chapter four. And recast, I love to remind you that this is God's holy and precious word, a holy moment for us to hear from the Almighty in this gathering. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray as the band comes to lead us in worship this morning. Father, we are, uh, we are here together on this Father's Day, and I recognize that that brings up all kinds of different thoughts and different emotions. Uh, some have a fabulous example in a father. Some have uh, no father in their life anymore. Um, some have a broken relationship with their father who exists now in a tense relationship but Father, I thank you for your word that drives deep into our hearts, words of caution, words of command, words of instruction to honor father and mother, words of instruction toward the church, even here, to identify to us the things that you desire to accomplish in us and through us. Father, I pray that you would make us a people of the word that would think of our relationships in terms of your word, would think of the church in terms of your word, would think of the way that we do our responsibilities for our employer in terms of the word, the way we relate in family to your word in all areas, submitted to the word, which is the word of your spirit, the word of Christ, the word of you, Father. I ask, Father, that you would be with our worship now as a people that are moving toward that day, a day of judgment, but also a day of great glory when Christ will come back for us. So Father, I pray that as we think about the, the cross, we think about the salvation we've received through Jesus and his grace, that you would light our hearts on fire with enthusiasm and with passion as we sing these songs to you, united in the church, which is this glorious temple of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Go to make yourself comfortable, um, but uh, reopen your Bibles or your devices or scripture journals, 1 Corinthians chapter three. Verses uh, 16 through the end of that chapter, going on to the first five verses of that. If at any time during the message you want to get up and get more coffee or juice or donut holes, while supplies last back there, <laughs> and then uh, if you need to use the restrooms, those are out the barn doors down the hallway on the left-hand side, um, just to acquaint yourself with that. And then if you, if you need to get up for any reason during the, during the sermon, you're not going to distract me, so um, whatever it takes to keep our focus on God's Word during the remainder of our time. Let me start with an outline this morning, and then um, we're going to dive into the text. But all of the points begin with the phrase, be careful this morning, because Paul has been in a mode of giving caution to the church in Corinth, and kind of by uh, default giving that same caution to us through the pages of the revealed word of God, his spirit, um, speaking to us the things that he desires the church to know. So the first one is, be careful, the church matters, verses 16 and 17. Be careful, the church matters. The second one is, be careful, godless wisdom is foolish. Godless wisdom is foolish, verses 18 through 20. And then um, verses 21 through the first verse of the next uh, chapter, be careful, the best humans are mere stewards. The best humans are mere stewards. The fourth one is, be careful, 
judgment is coming, verses two through five. Be careful, judgment is coming. So each of these points addresses a common temptation for each one of us, and I just kind of want to point out why he's talking this way, because there's temptations that we're going to face together uh, as a church, but also as individuals in a church, um, as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. These are going to be some temptations that tie in with these points. We're going to be tempted to marginalize the value and importance of the local church. Anybody kind of see that happen a bit during COVID? A bit during these last few years, a little bit of a marginalization in our own hearts about the value of gathering together as God's people. And the corrective to that is found in the text, the church matters a lot to God. We're going to be tempted to follow the godless wisdom of this world. There's plenty of that going around in every media and every source that we look at. There's tons of worldly wisdom that is completely and utterly godless. So Paul tells us that godless wisdom is actually foolishness. No matter how it sounds, no matter how many letters are after somebody's name, no, no matter how much they are a subject expert, if it is godless wisdom, it is foolishness. We're going to be tempted to trust people and to attach our lives to those we would lift up on pedestals. And so Paul says in this, they are mere servants and stewards. And we're going to be tempted to rash and quick judgments over those who are fallen and those who are successful, assigning value to people according to whether or not they are successful in the world's eyes or not. And Paul reminds us that there is only one assessment that really matters in the end. Only one assessment really matters, and it is still yet future, and it is that everyone is going to give an accounting to God. And so well, let's jump at the beginning here. Um, be careful, the church matters, verses 16 through 17. Um, we had a lively and I would say beneficial discussion at our community group, the Young Marrieds group that meets at our house on Sunday afternoons after church. And we had a, a good discussion about the local church versus the universal church. And I thought maybe if our community group had questions about it, maybe you do too. Uh, so to clarify that here in this point about what the church is, um, it's a question mark over us really. When, we, when we're reading the Bible and we read these epistles, it's important for us, the letters that Paul writes, it's important for us to, to kind of suss out who's he talking to. Do Paul's words here to, to, in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian believers apply to us, recast? That's a, it's a viable question. Or is it just generically applicable to all Christians individually and you really don't, you really don't need to gather, you really don't need to be a part of a church, you just kind of you know, apply these things in your life and you'll be fine. The New Testament, what you need to understand, is extremely very communal in its language. Very much about connecting people. Very much about us living the life of Christ in community with one another. Rubbing each other the wrong way. Encouraging one another. Building one another up. Praying for one another. Rebuking one another. All kinds of things within the church that, that make us uncomfortable in the amount of interaction that we are called to with one another. Paul ends the letter, for example, to the Romans with an entire chapter of names of people. I point that out to say how utterly communal these letters are. They are written to real people in real context. He is not writing these letters to the generic average Christian. He's writing them to people with names, with histories, with relationships. Real people just like us. And people with, and churches with, real divisions. I think it's helpful for me to say here that God desires all Christians to be connected into a community of a gathering of believers for mutual edification and for encouragement and for accountability. Uh, if somebody invites you, let me think about this universal church versus uh, local gathering for just a moment. If somebody invites you to Starbucks, you would never ask, all of them? All of them? That's going to take us a while. Because you are a finite person, you cannot meet the whole, uh, you can't meet at all of the Starbucks, right? Uh, what's the logical question when somebody says, let's meet at Starbucks? Which one? And because you are a finite person, you cannot meet with the whole universal church. You never have. One day in glory, you will. One day in glory, you will. People from every tribe, language, people, nation, and era of human history that are born again and are in the family of God through Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's a glorious thing. So the, 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 the clear instruction of the New Testament is plug into a local assembly, commit and work out these things that Paul has for all who take Christ seriously. 
By the way, this, this, this wars against the idea of making a church of people connected to me. How many of you know there's multiple churches in Kalamazoo? Did you already know that? There's a bunch of churches. You could be in a whole bunch of different places. And my hunch is that the average person here has a whole host of friends that are in other churches today, right? This morning, you're not with all your friends. So is all of your, couldn't you just make a church of your friend group? Couldn't just your friends be your church? We get together, we hang out, we have fun. We're a church. Well, that, who's the center of that church? You. You're the center of that church. You're the center of your friend group. You're the one, you're the one that has all of these different relationships that you're, they're, they're all in association with you. How many of you think you need more than that? People just who think like you, people who you have fun with, people who you, you enjoy the same shows, you enjoy the same stuff, and so, no, we need more than that, do we not? Some people think that a church is just merely a gathering of their friends, but the church is a gathering of people who, yeah, incorporates friends and also <laughs> some people who it's, it's work to be friends with. That's true. I'm saying all of this because the definition of church matters significantly to our passage because the church matters significantly to God. Writing to a specific group of gathered people in the city of Corinth uh, under the leadership of elders, under the direction of Christ for his glory, for his honor, practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper together. All of those categories of a church Paul asks a very accusatory and even snarky question in verse 16. Look at it. Don't you know? When somebody starts a question like that, it's like, wait, where are you going? Don't you know that you're God's temple? Speaking to a local group, a gathering of people with names and issues and problems, he, he reminds them that the spirit dwells within their midst, within their fellowship, is the very temple of God. And all of the yous, what you need to understand is that all the yous in verse 16 and 17 are plural. This is not um, talking about the spirit dwelling within us as individual believers, though that is true, and he will talk about that later in this very same letter. But this passage that we're looking at this morning is intentionally more corporate in nature. What is a church? A church is a gathering of redeemed people under the lordship of Christ in the power and the presence of his spirit, organized under uh, qualified leadership with the practicing of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Paul has been speaking about the church as a metaphorical building, and he cautioned that all who are seeking to build upon the church should do so with caution. But now in verse 17, he gives us an even stronger caution. If anyone destroys God's temple, that is the church, that's the fellowship, that's the people. If anybody divides the church, God will destroy him. And the used guys are used guys. Y'all are that temple. Anybody who comes in here and tries to divide this body, tries to get us warring against one another, tries to, through gossip and slander, tries to get factions, tries to say, aren't, aren't you team this elder? I'm team this elder. I'm on this side of this issue. I'm on that side of this issue. I think you guys, have, many of you have seen it. Many of you have seen how divisive a church can be. Praise God that that hasn't been our history, 14 years of God's blessing of unity and love in this fellowship. Working through issues, not perfection, but working through it together, I love it. His church is set apart, the text says. It is holy, that's what the word, set up, that's what the word holy means, is set apart for the purposes of his glory. It is a unique institution that God has God's heart and God's protection over it. And the very fact that Paul says this to a small gathering for, uh, of Christians that love Christ in Corinth gives me confidence that we can apply it to a small gathering here in Matawan, Michigan in 2023. Now, the text seems to indicate a category of person that we don't feel very comfortable even identifying. As a matter of fact, we don't like to believe that they exist because we don't regularly, regularly fortunately, encounter this type of person. So we tend to become blind to this kind of person's existence in verse 17. But you see, he, he, he said that there are some who would seek to dismantle churches from within. They would love to blow it up. Some, is, last week, he was talking about judgment for Christians, those who are followers of Christ. And what's it going to look like when we stand before God on that day? And he says, some will build with, uh, some build up churches with good intentions. They want to glorify Christ. They want to lift him up and lift him high. And so the work that they do in the building up of the church is like building with gold or silver or precious stones. When he says that some others will build with bad intentions of self-centeredness, and it's like building with wood or hay or straw. 
But here I identifies a third category of person. Some are absolutely destructive. And they show themselves to not belong to Christ in their destructive intentions and actions and are worthy of themselves being destroyed. Now, uh, there is nobody, there is nobody who would break into my house and seek to harm my wife that I would assume is with me. You You get what I'm saying there? If somebody, if somebody breaks in and tries to destroy my bride, I don't assume that they're on my team. How could we assume that somebody who would come into the flock and seek to destroy the bride of Christ is with him? We are talking here about people who will infiltrate and come within the, within the walls of the church with the intention of destroying the bride of Christ. Do you have a category for that kind of person? The New Testament authors had a category of this kind of person, and they called them ravenous wolves. It's a real type of person. People who pretend to be together with the church and are actually destructive in their hearts. And so a church without elders who concern themselves for the protection of the flock is a church in danger of being torn apart by wolves. And the church matters to God. Recast our fellowship and our unity matters to God. With, the basic, with that basic caution of unity out of the way, we move on to the second point of the text here. With the, the first one being, um, be careful, the church matters. The second is, be careful, godless wisdom is foolishness. Now, all of these are rehearsals of themes that Paul has already talked about that he's reiterating for us. He's cycling through these again here at the end of this section of Scripture to reiterate those kinds of things, those root causes of division. And there's a switch between the corporate church and the individuals within the church in the way that he uses pronouns and language in verses 18 through 20. Now we're getting a chance at self-assessment as individuals. Now that we're reminded that our connection with community matters, with one another, now that that's out of the way and we know that he loves the church, he loves the gathering of his people, we see a warning against self-deception in verse 18. And, and we ought to pay close attention whenever scripture identifies an area of common self-deception, we ought to perk up our ears a bit. Because the trickiest part of self-deception is the inability to see it. Nobody is deceived intentionally. Nobody deceives themselves intentionally. And so the revelation of God's word is going to seek to open our eyes to something that we are routinely blinded to here, church. We will be tempted in worldly wisdom to follow the self-professed wise guys of this age. That's going to be a temptation for us. To follow the experts. We have been taught and told for the past few years, just follow the experts. Blindly follow the experts. We are drawn to people. Uh, we are drawn to people naturally in our na- it's like in our nature. The way that we're built is that we 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 follow the strong guy. We follow the attractive, the person with strategies and plans, the influencers, the ones who grab our attention. Those are the ones that the world seeks to follow. We will gravitate toward men and women who tell us where they're going and where they will take us. And of course, it's always a good place, right? It's always a good place they're going to take us. Now, I don't think for a second that Paul is saying that a sure sign of a guy you ought to follow is uneducated and foolish in the world's eyes. Like, that's not a a qualification that that you're you're looking for somebody uneducated. Now, Now, follow them. No, but a leader in the church, hear me carefully, a leader in the church who never speaks anything contrary to our prevailing culture is a man who is likely compromised with the wisdom of the world. Do you get what I'm saying? If he never says anything that is contrary, that is divisive, that is open to the critique of our culture, then he is likely compromised. Becoming a fool in this text, you can see it there in the text, becoming a fool in order to become wise is equivalent in our modern day to proclaiming Jesus Christ as the crucified Messiah, proclaiming his sacrifice for our sins, and even being bold enough to declare what sin is, and proclaiming his empty tomb as victorious, that this life is not all that we live for. The line between the foolishness of this world and the wisdom of God has become more and more obvious in recent years. Do you guys see it? And the divide between the revealed word of God and the prevailing winds of secular doctrine are shocking to our system. How rapidly these changes are coming at us. Anybody raise your hand and testify like, I'm a little shocked. I'm a little scandalized. Like the, the rapid rate of the foolishness of the world becoming like all of a sudden, that's wise. These things are being declared wise and they're being pushed. 
And I can imagine that parts of God's word, parts of God's wisdom, parts of God's revelation of his will and his desire will likely be declared to be hate speech during my lifetime. You don't preach Romans 1. You preach Romans 1, you're in trouble. Can you imagine a culture like that? I don't think it takes much imagination, does it? In verses 19 and 20, Paul backs up God's opposition to attempts at worldly wisdom, godless wisdom, wisdom without him, and he quotes Job 5:13 and Psalm 94:11 to just demonstrate his power and his authority over worldly wisdom. They both emphasize in their context that God opposes the plots and schemes of the self-proclaimed wise and declares their efforts futile, empty, coming to nothing without him. What he's getting at here, church, is something that we do need to take on for ourselves because all, all of the foolishness is not just out there. We can have foolishness in our own hearts, right? God opposes the plots and schemes of the wise and declares that all futile. But here's what he's getting at. Our best thoughts, our best thoughts, are empty if they do not come from our creator. We cannot hold in our minds. We are not big enough to handle the, the weightiness of the unifying principles of all the loose threads of understanding of God. How many of you would just identify that you probably even in your theology have some inconsistencies? Like we're an inconsistent people. Like we can't, we can't gather the entirety of scripture into our brains and really bring them all together. I want you to think about who our God is. He not only knows the current location of every single atom in the universe, but he can trace the history and location of every single atom since he created it. That's just mind-bending. Unless you hate science and then you're just kind of like, I, I just tuned out there for a second, but I don't know. <laughs> it's unthinkable, church. It is unthinkable that we would seek to add our wisdom and our understanding to his ways and his plans. This is folly defined. To correct him, to revise his strategies, to try to spin PR for him, to take his church down a road that he has not prescribed. Church, not a good idea. Not a good idea at all to oppose the ways of God and his wisdom, which appears to be foolish to the world. Paul wants to make sure we, that we're getting this because he's been on this for a while. He's so emphatic, he's so repetitive that we ought to really develop a red flag surrounding worldly wisdom as a tool within his church, godless wisdom in the church. I confess that even after several weeks of studying this, I don't have a hard and fast, clear line of delineation between worldly wisdom and just plain old common sense. And I think we ought to have some common sense. I think the Proverbs declares some common sense, but it's God-revealed common sense but I lean towards emphasizing that the worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom is trust in anything besides the gospel of Jesus Christ to really affect lasting change in people's hearts and in culture at large. What is going to change our, our culture? What's gonna change hearts? What's gonna change people? It is the gospel, it is the good news. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The thing that Paul said, I, I didn't really speak of anything among you except that. The cross of Christ. The worldly wisdom that Paul opposes here is a godless wisdom that disagrees with anything that God has revealed to be true. And I, I think it's hard to discern, by the way, when a church gives over too much to the world system. It's often a behind-the-scenes slide that happens. But I can tell you that my concern for the last 14 years here as the pastor-planter of Recast Church has been to steer away as far as I can from worldly systems and prefabricated programs to grow the church. You might be surprised to know this, it might not shock you, but I get junk emails every single week and ads on social media that they know I'm a pastor because things that I post, so, you know, probably even hear it, probably listen to this sermon right now, I'm preaching from an iPad, so they're getting all this content somehow. But I get regular, regular junk mails and ads to sell me books or sermon series or management systems guaranteed to grow your church by 20, 30, 40% or your money back. <laughs> get, a, get a refund if it doesn't work. But hear me carefully, church. You're not my plaything. This isn't a sandbox in which I'm testing various building plans, trying to tweak it just right so we get mega church status or something. Uh, let me just suggest to you 
what we started with and what I hope to end with is eventually I go out of this world. How about we, we stick to the revealed word of God? How about we stick to that? How about we keep, keep following hard on the heels of Jesus as we take up our cross and follow him? You see, here's, this is true, church. You might, not, you might not want to think it, but my best laid strategies, I'm saying this as a pastor here, my best laid strategies could very well take us all to hell. That's true. So let's follow the inspired teachings of the apostles instead. Everybody good with that? Let's keep doing that. So in light of the futility of the wisdom of humanity devoid of God, that leads into the third caution. Why would we ever boast in men? Be careful. The third point. The best humans are merely stewards. Verses 21 through chapter 4, verse 1. In verse 21, Paul directly and emphatically prohibits our boasting in people. It's a command. Don't do it. I think we rarely do it. We rarely disobey this command overtly like the Corinthians did, saying directly, I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, I, I, I follow Peter. But I think we do it more subtly. And I think it's ironic that Paul turns the entire structure of their boasting on its head. They say, I'm of Apollos. And he says, don't you know that Apollos is of you? You don't belong to Apollos. Apollos belongs to you. He is your servant, Corinth. He's there in terms of serving you. The phrase that all things are yours is better defined in verse 22, verses 22 and 23. But again, I want to emphasize that the yours in this text, in these texts, in verses 22 and 23, your is plural. Now, I got a grammar lesson early on from my brother-in-law who's a Texan. Now, everybody needs a Texan in your life, but I recommend only one. <laughs> I don't know if anybody here is from Texas, but uh, it still stands. Um, you might be that one. <laughs> He clarified for me very early on the superiority of the Texan language. You see, there is y'all, and then there's all y'all. The extra all is for emphasis to a larger group. Not just y'all, but all y'all. Verse 21 translates into Texan, for all things are all y'alls. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't offer Texan in my high school, so I had to, I had to settle for Spanish, which was close enough. Mm. <laughs> Some of you are getting it. It's coming in waves. So, <laughs> The reason this plural matters, the reason I'm going on about it, is that Paul is emphasizing the corporate nature of the Corinthians again. The church that has been dividing and fracturing and at risk of breaking apart into various factions. Together, together, he said earlier, they are the temple of the Spirit. Together they have been granted all things in their unity. You don't have all things by yourself. Did you know that? You don't have everything that you need to grow in Christ on your own. You need to be in community because there are people in this room that have gifts and talents and abilities and see things from a perspective that you need. That's why he brings us together. But together, all things are ours in Christ. You see, they don't belong to Paul. They don't belong to Apollos. Lift up your eyes, church. In Christ, we have been together given all things, whether elders or deacons or authors or podcasters or the world or life or death, the present or the future. And he just adds on top of things, the, the great inheritance. Are we forgetting our inheritance, church? Are we satisfied to identify ourselves by one mere human's name? While to the church has been given the glorious resources of all of the dominion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are Christ's church. And Christ, he says, is God's Christ. Tying the church back to God in this way is meant to be a startling reminder that we together belong to God. We are not any man's project. We are not a group of elders project. We are not a church planting teams project. Recast church is in Christ. And Christ is in God. Therefore, recast church is in God. I hope you're getting this clearly, church. Paul's emphatically repeating himself, and yet so much pain and hardship has been wrought in the church by elevation of men. 
It is worth rehearsing often that Paul belabors the point because it's so important. So it's important for us to grasp this idea because so much is at risk in it and we've seen it in our generation. I've seen in my lifetime misplaced boasting. I'm gonna say a couple of names. It might make people uncomfortable. You can talk to me later if you don't like me naming names. But I'm only gonna name them because I actually think that most of you are aware of them. Boasting in Ravi Zacharias. Boasting in Mark Driscoll. Boasting in Carl Lentz. These guys stand as men with very public moral failures in ministry. And I name them only because they were such obvious public ministry falls. And most of you have heard of all of them. And yet this message is clear that it is not merely for fear of their failure, but it could even be more problematic in their success. Let me explain. The ability to elevate those who didn't fall like Ravi. The ability to elevate those who didn't fall like Carl Lentz. The ability for us to begin to take on ourselves the judgment role over who, in it, who is and who isn't worthy. Are you getting what I'm saying? Should Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City boast in Timothy Keller because he didn't have a major fall before his death a couple months ago, maybe last month? Or should Christ the King Presbyterian in Bel Air boast in Eugene Peterson who passed away without any obvious known scandal? Do we get the privilege of elevating those guys who seemed to finish well? The danger might be more so found in those situations where there was no major public failure. You see, we are tempted to think these men had no scandal and therefore are worthy of our attention. While the wisdom of God would tell us otherwise. If we're tempted to boast in any man's success, we are speaking about that which, hear me carefully, church, we do not know. We pretend we know. We pretend we know the life of Timothy Keller and all the thoughts in the backdrop of his life. We think that we know Eugene Peterson or name your hero that you think finished well. But we are trusting in our ignorance about each other, are we not? Don't you know you're not known by everybody in this room? Like God knows you. I've had many people down through the ages. I'm going to be expose myself a little bit here. I'm, I, uh, down through the ages, I've had people denigrate my marriage in a specific kind of way. They didn't know they were doing it. They thought they were. They thought they were talking me up, and they were actually putting me down. I've been in the middle of counseling multiple times. I would say it's at least a dozen times that this has happened. I'm counseling somebody, stay with your wife. I'm counseling somebody, stay together. I'm a couple, I'm counseling the wife, stay with your husband. And they will inadvertently say something like this. They, don't, they, 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 they have well-meaning intentions in saying it, and I recognize there's some people in this room that have said this to me, and yeah, I'm gonna just still say it. They say, you just don't get it, Don. You can't understand my situation. Because you've got, what are they going to say? Linda. You've got Linda. <laughs> you don't get it. Me and my wife just don't have what you guys have. You can't relate to this. And I bet, I, like I said, I've heard it a dozen times in various forms. And I want to tell you that nothing could be more insulting to the tenacious stubbornness it has taken for Linda and I to stay together. It's insulting to say we haven't been where you've been. What do you think we're made of? You think this is easy? Are you kidding me? We've had years. I wasn't sure we were going to make it. I have been as self-centered and uncaring and oblivious to her needs as any man could be. And she has set her jaw against me for seasons. I have her permission to share that. She's back working with kindergarten. You're like, wait, where'd she go? <laughs> we're still together. <laughs> She's... Teaching some kids back there. <laughs> huh. But here's my point. You don't know the brokenness. You don't know the brokenness that people around you carry. But here's what you can know, church. They're broken. They're broken to a person in this room. How could we take the Bible seriously and what it declares over every man that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for our sins, every woman, or we would be condemned eternally to hell and then we boast in men? We boast in women? Are you kidding me? Instead, if you want to encourage leaders and those who serve you, then do them all a favor by letting verse one of this text, verse one of chapter four, form your perspective over their ministry 
How should you regard me as the guy up here preaching most of the time? This is how we should regard us. This is how one should regard me, how one should regard your leaders, how one should regard the elders as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, mere stewards, mere servants. Regard me as a man seeking to be found faithful by my Lord and Master. Recognize that I have a content to convey. I can't be your mouthpiece. I can't get up here and say the things that you want me to say. I have to speak the words of God. I am called to be a mere steward of heavenly treasures. The treasures are not mine. The mail is not mine, I just deliver it. I'm merely a curator of the treasures of the glory of Christ. And by the way, I am not a freelance, I'm not a freelance author for God. I am given the content to declare and make known. We are, we, broaden that a minute. We are given the content to make known to those around us. Fourth and final point here in the text is be careful because judgment is coming, verses two through five. The final caution reminds us again that there is a future judgment coming. It begins in verse two with a reminder that if we are mere stewards, then we will give an account to our master upon his return. Jesus included, by the way, the, this concept of steward, somebody who is merely um, watching somebody else's possessions for a period of time. And he used that all over the place in his parables. One master, he says, left in, in one story that he tells, left a various sums of money with different stewards, three different stewards, in fact, and then hoped that they would invest it. And when he returns, they stand before him, giving an account for the way they have discharged those responsibilities. That kind of accounting. And we will also have our moment with our master on that final day and giving an account for the things that he has given to us to do, to accomplish. Paul went into some detail about that judgment last week. Called the, it's technically called the Bema Seed. It's the, the Christian judgment where we will be judged according to the good works that we did, whether, they are, whether it's um, silver and gold or, or precious stones or wood, hay or straw, depending on whether or not we served him for his glory. Those are available, that, that message last week. By the way, if you're curious about that judgment and you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that on YouTube or the podcast. But the judgment for Christians does not have heaven and hell in the balance, praise God. We are not at risk of condemnation if we are truly in Christ. Christ has removed that fear from us, but instead our judgment will be one of judging our works, whether they were done for Christ or not. But in light of that future judgment, Paul takes any criticism or judgment from people in this life as a very small thing. Now this seems kind of shocking, right? Uh, are we not accountable to one another? Are we not working through life together? Well, yeah, but we, we take that carefully in light of God's word, right? We might get a wrong judgment about each other. Somebody might come to you and say, hey, I think you're stealing from your company, and you're not. Like, that would be a false judgment, right? So we have to take it all in perspective. There are two reasons that Paul didn't spend a lot of time introspecting and navel-gazing about himself. And we ought to take this on as well because I think there's a lot of that going on in our culture. We're just trying to figure ourselves out, taking personality tests, doing the Enneagram, doing this, doing that, so I can know myself. And, and you know what? Uh, get done with that quick. Get to know him. Like, get done with that whole get to know yourself stuff. Paul says, first in verse four, he says, I don't trust human justice to get it right. So, so the critique of others or his own personal conscience, he says, that's not it. He doesn't take the time to judge himself because he admits that he can feel just fine while being guilty of sin. Look at verse four. I want you to put your eyes on it for a second because it's a really interesting passage. Verse four, uh, it's a super honest and authentic self-appraisal that he's getting at here. Paul says this, I can be going about my day feeling pretty good about myself, not aware of anything against myself, assessing myself as doing a great job, but that feeling is not synonymous with acquittal. Why? Because the Lord is my judge. My conscience isn't my judge. I'm not gonna stand before my conscience one day and give an account. I'm gonna stand before the Lord who knows and sees all things. That's my judge. So who cares what the investigators uncover when the judge who stands over your trial already knows everything? Paul isn't giving an excuse for sin or a laissez-faire attitude towards judgment and his like, re rejection of navel-gazing and rejection of like, taking too seriously other people's critique. He is saying that human opinion of his good or bad is ins insignificant and barely even relevant. What people think of me isn't worth comparing to what Jesus Christ thinks of me. I encourage you to adopt that. And he knows 
He knows about me all the things that you guys don't know about me. He knows it all. So look at the final verse of our text in verse 5. Um, uh, there is a, a judgment coming. It's future. We are awaiting the return of our Lord and Savior. And our just judge and the king of an eternal kingdom is coming back for us. And he will bring to light all the hidden things. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. What was the purpose of our heart when we served last week at sports camp, many of us? Was it to glorify Jesus? What about the, the heart behind greeting at the door? What about the heart for serving in kids' ministry? What about the heart for playing musical instruments on stage? What is all of that? Was there some other end, or was it to make much of Jesus? All of our activities of life push through that grid. But Paul was working to receive his commendation from God. Paul was not working so that others would boast in the name of Paul. I find, I hope you do too, I find Paul's attitude here refreshing. He is trusting in Christ for salvation and he is working for his master to be faithful and he isn't spending all of his time worrying what others think. He, isn't seeking, he is rather only focused on the honoring of one, which is a lot easier than trying to please 278 people. Quick, quick maths. <laughs> and not accurate, I have no idea. <laughs> a good application to this that might be missed is to just recognize that we're not good at telling the quality of each other's work. We're not good at it. We need to be careful to keep this in context, by the way, of doing what we do for Jesus. He is going to command the Corinthians to judge sinful behavior when we get to chapter five, and he's gonna be pretty emphatic about it. There, we have a standard of God's word that is a faithful guide as to what, it, what is and isn't sinful action. The things that we can see clearly ought to be addressed. There is room for rebuke. There is room for correction. There is room for responding to somebody who identifies sin in our lives. But here he's saying, don't judge the quality of the work in the church. I'm not to go around chastising people, assuming wrong motives in them as they teach our children and recast kids nor am I to elevate people to heroic status due to their service, but where we see sin, we address it. Where it's clear. So as far as applications go, just a sentence on each point as we're wrapping things up this morning, um, and we're gonna go into communion here in a moment. Um, but it, I, I'm gonna share these sentences that go with the points, and then my, my hope is that the Spirit grabs those in a way that helps you to put some flesh on it. Because I don't live in your context. I don't live where you live, and I don't live in your heart. And you, So maybe something that I say here is going to jog you in a way that the Spirit is pressing on you. Man, that's my life change this week. That's the thing that God wants to work in me. So the first caution was be careful the church matters. So let me encourage all of us to be an agent of love and unity and service within the church. That might mean something to some of you. Maybe the spirit is going like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta engage. I've been disengaged and I need, to, I need to plug back in. The second thing is be careful. Godless wisdom is foolish. So seek the life transforming wisdom that God gives clearly in his word. Maybe you're not being renewed in your mind uh, through the life-giving word. And, and there's all, of course, there's all kinds of flesh you can put on that. Like, maybe I need to get back to reading through the Bible in a year. Maybe I need to just take a chapter a day. Uh, there's all different kinds of ways you could do that. But that might be a good application is that the wisdom from God, uh, you get that in there and it's going to start pushing out the crud. Because how many of you know you believe some lies? You believe some things. The culture is getting in you whether you, whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not. But this word will push that stuff out. The third is be careful. The best humans are mere stewards. And just encouragement to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and give thanks to him for all things that he has given. He gets the credit for anything good. Uh, and he has given many good things to his church, including servants. I rejoice regularly over the elders that God has placed in this church. I have other pastor friends who uh, would love to have a couple of my elders. <laughs> they, they, uh, they would love to have a couple of these guys at their church. They just can't find them. I'm just very grateful for guys who step up and lead. The fourth is be careful. Judgment is coming. And there's two sentences here. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord, then I encourage you to surrender your life to him, asking him to be your Lord and Savior, and he will faithfully rescue you. But if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, then let me encourage you on the flip side of that, believing the gospel, stop stressing about judgment and just serve him for your commendation. The stress is over. Now everything else is icing on the cake. Now get serving with gladness. Get moving in joy. Jesus took the sting of judgment by himself being judged for us on the cross. 
my sins, our sins imputed to him and he took the punishment my sins deserved on that cross. And conversely, his righteous obedience to the Father was imputed to me so that I am considered righteous. So those who have asked Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior and are seeking to stand in unity with his church this morning, feel free to come to the tables during this next song and take the cracker to remember his body broken for us. Take that cup of juice to remember his blood that was shed in our place. You can take that cup and that cracker back to your seat and eat and drink as you're ready. But after communion, we're going to have another song. If you plan to stay for the parent dedication, please go get your kids right away after you take communion. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to go back to your seats if you want to go get your kids for that and then come back in here. We're going to have one song after communion and then we're going to start with this thing. So I encourage you to get back in here as soon as you can. If you're going to leave, I just ask that it's a nice day out. If you can take conversations out into the parking lot if, you, if, you're, if you're planning on leaving, it's just that it gets loud out in the, out in the foyer there. And especially if we're trying to run something in here. Um, but come back in here. We're going to start that parent dedication right after the song or um, all the families participating are back up here. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the corrective nature of it that, that uh, gives us caution, faithfully identifies the, the brokenness in our own hearts and is faithful to provide the remedy who is Jesus Christ, but then also um, draws within us the, the clarity to which you've called us in this walk with you. You desire for us to honor you with our days, to honor you in the power of your spirit, in the unity and the gathering of your people. You value your church. And I thank you for bringing us together with unity, with love, with care for one another, growing in faith, growing in community, growing in service here as a church, your church, not any man's church, not any group of elders' church, but yours. We rejoice in that and ask that you help us to serve one another well, to love one another well, that we might get that commendation in the end, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the, the, the force, uh, the impetus behind the things that we do in the day-to-day. -day. We ask this in Jesus' name.